to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts, Ngazi Wella and Obehi Alafoje. Let's get this rebellion started. In this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion, I am joined by Francis Darlington Pollock, Head of Strategic Development at Greater Manchester Mayor's Charity. The GM Mayor's Charity is an independent charity that believes homelessness has no place in Greater Manchester. And it's a charity that brings people, businesses and communities together to pioneer new ideas and champion promising practice. They are firm believers that through prevention and intervention, change is possible. And at Aurora, we believe the very same thing. Through her career, Frances has always tried to be part of the change in inequality. She's done a doctorate in it. She has lectured in it and she has worked in it. And since November 22, she took on a new challenge, heading up the GM Mayor's charity, working to end homelessness. Frances has commented on inequality in the UK across multiple media outlets, including the BBC and talk radio. And she's also appeared on LBC's Cross Question as a panellist. Now, inequality hurts all of us. The pain is greater for those at the bottom of whatever social hierarchy they sit in, but it matters for all of us. Francis is a firm believer that we can change that. I can't wait for you to hear what she's got to say, including some valuable insights on how you support our well-being superheroes, those people who go above and beyond to support everyone else. Let's get started. Fran, welcome to the Wellbeing Rebellion. Lovely to have you here. Thanks for having me. You have had a very, and we spoke about this earlier, it's a very impressive career you've had. You've done so much in in a space that I think makes me personally feel proud to know you because I love the the social justice aspect of your career. I love working with people who are dedicating their lives to making other people's lives better. And you've certainly done that um, through your time. What's driven you to work in this kind of um, arena of inequality, homelessness, social justice, all of that? I think like two things. Firstly, when I was, when I was a student, as an undergrad, I remember I wrote an essay around, I did politics degree when I was at Sheffield, and I, I wrote an essay around whether or not we had a human right to healthcare, which was like a, a kind of, and you know, I, I don't know how good the essay was, you know, I was 21 or whatever. Um, but it it got me really interested in this idea of who has a human right and then what the concept of a human right is and all the theory behind a human right that was originally, you know, like you have to be autonomous and 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 kind of a rational autonomous being. But that word autonomy then kind of, does things that mean some people start to be excluded because of their their background or people who maybe are living with a disability, for example, may not be classified as fully autonomous. And I was just like, that's weird. So I kind of started getting interested in the way people talked about what was right and wrong. But that was just kind of like building on a long-standing sense of not injustice. I think that's kind of like making my younger self seem too deep. But I just didn't understand why some people had it well and some people didn't and I've always been fairly comfortable you know my parents we were not really well off we were not poor we were not kind of you know much of it we were very much in the middle 
And so for me, it was kind of like, well, what what can I personally do that would help other people? And what can I also do to give other people voices where they should have? And, you know, my biggest struggle has been being a woman, but I'm mm. that, that's it. And so I think for me, it's kind of like other people have it have it bad. And it's all relative. Like, you know, as an individual, you can feel that you're suffering and you should be allowed to feel that that and and be able to kind of experience that but you should also know that other people might need your support more or might need you to stand up for them or might need you to understand so I've always wanted to just understand and try and understand which has led me to kind of be like okay if I can take action what action can I take I think you raise a really interesting point there about how everybody has the right to feel crap and like their pain is valid but that doesn't absolve you always of the need to support others in their help and recognize other people's distress and how you can help. That's really closely linked to one of the, the five ways of well-being that uh, the NEF recommended, which is all about how you engage with other people and you give to other people. So in giving, we're not navel gazing as much. We're seeing how we can contribute and, and that actually gives us um, something back. It gives us a, a sense of purpose and a sense of accomplishment that helps lift our mental health and well-being. So in a way, it's a bit selfish, but yeah. Yeah, that's it's funny, isn't it? Because you do do it because it makes you feel good. Like, and it does make me feel good to do something which I think is helping people and making a difference. And I'd be mm. wrong if I didn't say that I got value out of that and kind of like personal pride um and here at the the well-being rebellion we are obviously we're focused on culture change and mental health and well-being i um wanted to know have you had any dark times any any struggles with your own personal mental health so I kind of briefly mentioned it to you earlier. So like a couple of years ago, I, I got ill where basically just one random day I woke up. I actually woke up feeling, I only had one gin and tonic last night. Why do I feel hungover? Mm. And like, I'd been out for dinner with a colleague and just one drink. And I was like, it's a bit odd, isn't it? I was like, okay, fine. And then through the course of the day, I started feeling iller and iller and iller. And then I stopped being sick. And mm. I didn't stop being sick for three years. And I couldn't read three years three years and this was just before the pandemic so it was kind of the summer before the pandemic so I kind of went into my own personal lockdown that many other people experienced in a much more deep and significant way than I did but before the lockdown because Mm. I couldn't do anything I was still working to some extent I was still trying to be but I didn't have any energy I was embarrassed about what was going on people there was a kind of the doctors couldn't work it out there was like are you bulimic are you actually being sick mm. but you know mm. the kind of the evidence was in the weight loss like I'm a, a more um, normal weight now but I lost a lot of weight very very quickly and I just through all that I then became very very low like really mm. really low and it it probably got worse as everybody's mental health and well-being did through the pandemic me and my husband were just kind of trapped in this one space where we were trying to deal with everything but also for a lot of the first part the half the pandemic we didn't know what was wrong with me so we didn't know Mm. I didn't go out I was also kind of like remaining inside because we didn't know why I was being sick every day why I was losing so much weight and I was I was in a very dark place probably for quite a lot of that but then 
maybe 2021, I think, was probably the lowest I got to. And what was that like? That was really hard. And I remember, you know, I spoke to some people. I was doing CBT for a bit. And it was funny, the conversation I was having with the person who was supporting was like, it was almost like there weren't any negative powerful thoughts to disrupt. Like it wasn't that I was kind of like catastrophizing. I was just being like, mm. this is the current situation and I'm finding it hard. It wasn't working for me, that kind of particular approach. But I was, I just felt, I felt so not me and such a kind of shadow, like physical and mental of my former self. Mm. But I was also trying really hard to kind of pretend that I was still okay. I was a PI on a research project. I was writing a book. I was I was an academic at the time. You know, the, the, the myth that universities shut during the pandemic was very much a myth. You know, we were there working, turning everything online, trying to be there for our students whilst also doing the research that we needed to do. So I was doing all of that whilst pretending to the world that I wasn't being sick every day being sick after half hour after eating, losing weight, and also just feeling like a failure. I think actually I felt that and I felt like a failure. Was that the first time you'd experienced mental um, health challenges, let's call it? In different ways. Um, that was actually probably the first time I actually said to myself and then to my husband, I am depressed. I am currently depressed. Okay. And how did you get through it? Saying that helped, actually saying it and recognising it. Um, and being able to kind of, because I thought what I'd been doing to help myself was better. I knew I shut down and I completely shut down. Like I didn't, I would maybe see people who lived very locally, but mm. I, didn't, I didn't engage with other people. I didn't engage with a lot of my friends. I was probably snappy, definitely snappy at my poor <laughs> husband. I, mm. and, But I think actually saying to yourself, you are depressed and you're trying to do something about it was probably a good thing and trying to talk to people but talk when you can and how you can rather than forcing it and what I said earlier I was struggling because I was feeling guilty for feeling low when I was like look at my life I have a good job I have a husband I have a house I'm lucky and then I had to sit back and say like you can be fortunate and happy with what you've got whilst also finding it hard so allowing myself to find it hard and not feeling guilty about that was probably quite a good thing that I'm still attempting maybe I think you raise a really interesting point that not many people talk about in in this space because I recognize so many of the things that you talked about um, when you were describing your depression um, that sense that how dare I feel bad when I'm surrounded by so much that's good that others would kill for I can't I can't feel this bad but yet simultaneously not being able to deny the fact to yourself that you do you feel like crap and and you're not happy uh, and recognizing that actually both things are true you know that you've got a good life but you're not happy because of whatever it was for you it was your health for mm -hmm. me it was my career and the sense of identity I had yeah it's um, important to recognize that sometimes both things coexist and that's okay yeah yeah mm. and you know you talk about career then you know during this time I had a major career change like, partly in response to that and I think that that had obviously been a driver of some of my worries or challenges and yeah but 
allowing all those things and testing new ways and seeing if you can find a better way of living the one life you've got, which sounds a bit corny, but you know what I mean. But it's true. Yeah. <laughs> it is. You've got one life. You've got to do the best you can with it. Yeah. And so what was the career change? Well, so I was an academic at the time. I was at the University of Liverpool, um, uh, lecturing population and health geography, um, researching on people, place, politics, inequality, all those kind of things. And for lots of different reasons, it wasn't working for me. Um, and so I had enough and looked for another job and got a job uh, working at an NGO. So I went to save the children. Great. You really are a superhero. <laughs> I'm trying really hard not to be intimidated because those who know me or have heard my story know that what I had wanted to do when I grew up, if I ever grow up, was to be Secretary General of the UN. And you're the closest person I've met to, to someone who um, sets the intention of trying to make the world better and saving the world and, and actually dedicates their life to doing it. So you work for Save the Children. Yeah. That's a, a very, um, I, I don't know, it's hard when people are saying that kind of thing because I don't think I'm deserving of that sort of praise. I just have done what I've done. But yeah, I worked for Save the Children um, for about a year it was because I wanted to, I, I did wanted to move into the kind of charity sector um, mm -hmm. and see what it was like. And, you know, the people there were great. I, I, I loved the kind of ethos of what we were doing in the sense of being there, coming together to to support children across the world. You know, I was based in the UK, but actually it was my role was largely international and I did a lot at Save the Children International as well. Um, but what for me wasn't right was that who I am and all my knowledge and all my experience is um, is in the UK. And so where can, and all of the kind of, you know, when I was an academic, I'd had these initial feelings of a I'm writing a paper but is anyone going to read it other than that student if I put it on their kind of curriculum syllabus whatever reading list um so I joined the board of a charity um and then that was you know it was UK issues and I just felt actually I need to be doing stuff in the UK not internationally and actually when I was at Save the Children part of my role was trying to work around empowering in 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 international spaces for kind of local groups to be doing more so how do we help them do more rather than kind of fly in as save the children you know let's mm -hmm. kind of like support people there but it wasn't for me close enough to what I wanted to do or could do so that's why I was looking for work in the kind of the UK space domestic space. So that's how you ended up working for the GM Mayor's charity yeah do you want to tell us a little bit about what the charity does in your role? Yeah, so Greater Manchester Mayor's Charity, and I'll tell you one thing, it's been um, amazing to actually live and work in the city, in the same city, for the first time in years, <laughs> so I quite enjoy that. <laughs> um, but Greater Manchester Mayor's Charity, we are an independent charity who believes homelessness has no place here. We were set up around 2019 um, after Andy Burnham's election, and he wanted to see an end to homelessness, so he wanted to be donating money, started a fund, and out of that fund, and he still donates 15% of his salary a month, out of that fund came the Greater Manchester Mayor's Charity. And we raise money across Greater Manchester to um, enable a bed every night, to enable the universality of a bed every night, but also to enable other charities and organisations working to support people 
at risk of experiencing homelessness, currently experiencing homelessness, and mm. we want to give them grants, help them help people who need it. So that's the role of a charity, really. Which really brings me to why we're talking today on this podcast, apart from the fact that I just find this work fascinating. But people who are dedicated to helping others, these, I, I call them the well-being superheroes, and they are often the first to volunteer their time, their energy. Um, those kinds of people, I find, are sometimes the worst at looking after themselves and the worst at asking for help. So is that something that you, having worked in the not-for-profit, in charities, NGOs, that you find that that there's this, this gap in who helps the people helping everyone else? Is that something that you found as well? Yeah, really, really have. And actually, there is... This isn't, you know, no individual sector has the kind of like ownership of a particular challenge or whatever. But I, I think in, in the charity sector in particular, because mm. everybody typically and like, you know, probably majority wise is there because they believe in what they're doing. They want to do something good. There is almost a kind of exploitation of that will to do good. You know, people will go as mm. far as they possibly can even if their hours are supposed to be nine to five, they will do yeah. everything they possibly can, even though the pay they get for doing that is going to be wildly different from the pay someone else might get in a different sector for doing the same sort of thing. And it's kind of like, because you're good people, you know, you will just do it. You mm. will go that extra mile. And to some extent that is true. People are, I mean, most people are just good people, but, and they want to make a difference, but because of the amount that often falls on people's shoulders when they work in this kind of sector, particularly smaller charities. We shouldn't generalise, but I think it's hard not to in this case. They don't tend to have the, the capacity, either the headspace or the literal resource, to also step back and say, actually, me doing all of this and then also trying to help all of these people or all of this environment, all of these animals, however, whatever your kind of goal, whatever charity space you work in, where does that leave space for you? I see this through the charity that I'm on the board for. I see this through discussions with people that Greater Manchester Mayor's Charity work with and, you know, provide grants to. I see this just in kind of like general discussion with friends, family, colleagues in different spaces. And I think we're really bad at saying, actually, the support we give to others is only as good as the support we have ourselves. And if we kind of go too far in... What was it? We were at something recently that um, some of the people from Greater Manchester Combined Authority had organised and uh, Joe Donoghue, who was there, I'm sure he'll uh, not uh, not mind me naming him, but he was talking about this, this where he'd heard someone talking about you can't pour from an empty cup. I say that. Oh. I say that all the time. Well, there you go. I love it's it. Really the thing. Yeah. And, and you can't. You can't. We, and I say we, like the massive we as funders, are we explicit enough in recognising that when we're working with charities who are then going out to help others, for example? I don't know if we are. Maybe it's because I'm relatively new to this space or I don't know. But that view that you can't pour from an empty cup is probably very recognised in some spaces. But I, what do we actually do to kind of make sure the cup's full? Um, in my experience, nowhere near enough. Mm. 
nowhere near enough. I love what you said there. Well, there were two key things. The first one was about um, the exploitation of people's goodwill and particularly people who are working in the voluntary caring space, whether that be because they work for a charity, the whole mission of the organization, the whole ethos is help somebody else, or because they work in corporate, they have volunteered themselves as mental health first aiders or um, I don't know, team support. Those people do tend to get exploited because they are so conscious of trying to help others ease their pain and suffering. And who's not going to say, yes, okay, well, I will miss so-and-so's birthday drinks because I want to help and make sure this person's crisis is resolved, even if I'm not getting paid. Who wouldn't say that? Everybody would say it. It's, it's just the problem when it happens too frequently. Yeah. And then the other thing you said is the support you can give is only as good as the support that you have for yourself, and I, which is another way of you can't pour from an empty cup. I know from experience that many of us try to squeeze every last drop out of our cups. But I know having done it myself, it is counterproductive. You have to, have to, have to, have to, have to look after yourself. But as organizations, we become lazy and we will take as much as um, as an organ as a as a person's willing to give. So I don't know how many companies put systems and support in place specifically for those who are helpers. Is that something you've done at the GM Mayor's Charity or any of the organisations you work for? Do you put specific support? in place for these people who are going through emotionally taxing roles, volunteer jobs, and um, might need just additional support? So I'm going to caveat the start of this with say that I still feel new into this role. And so then they're what I see as a kind of implicit support within the space in which we work through the various networks that are there. And for example, the fact that people who are working in the abed every night space have the opportunity to come together through these meetings that happen kind of periodically through the year and discuss, you know, what are the kind of good practice and what are the kind of challenges. That's a space for support. The fact that there is a network, Greater Manchester Homelessness Action Network of people who are coming together because they all want to tackle homelessness uh, to to end um, people having to face night on the streets. There is a support network there. What I currently see we could do more of is the actual explicit, here is the support for you. There are some things, you know, there's Mm. things like clinical supervision available to people who are working in a space where they have to kind of like vicariously experience someone else's trauma, which is going to be true for a lot of um, different spaces of the social justice arena, but particularly when you're trying to support someone who has spent a night out on the streets or many nights or who is fleeing domestic abuse or who has um, suffered a family breakdown because of their sexuality, their identity, all the different things that become trauma for an individual. The people Mm -hmm. who are supporting them, who are helping them, take on some of that trauma and if there's no one behind them to take some of that 
that becomes a problem. But you can't, it will keep passing back and back. You know, if it goes back to the line manager or the supervisor, who do they then talk to? And mm-hmm. what I'd really like to see and be in conversation with are people who are saying, okay, what do we do to create this more universally? Or when a charity, a frontline organisation goes to a funder, for example, and say, we would like to do this specific work. This is the project we would like to organise. And these are the people who are going to be supported by it or benefit from it. However, 10% of the budget we're asking for is going to supporting the people who are delivering the project for these different reasons. You know, so is there is that something that could become the norm? And is that the, the sort of thing that people apply for? It's like, you know, at the Mayor's Charity, we fund work. We look to fund organisations. This is done, you know, through our grant-making procedures with the board. And these sorts of conversations are the kind of things I want to have with people. I'm like, what sorts of things do we fund? And how are we ensuring that every pound that comes in and then goes out is going to be maximised? And surely some of that comes back to making sure that the people who are supporting people are themselves supported i think it has to fran it really does um everything you just mentioned right now is a concern of ours at aurora for organizations who put in place well-intentioned employee resources such as mental health first aiders to who receive training for a couple of days and then volunteer aspects of their time it's you are taking on an emotional load. If you're not careful, it will have, and I'm not saying can, it will have a negative impact on you. So it is the responsible thing for an organization to say, we like the structure here of having our volunteers. We like having these people here supporting us. We know it works. Therefore, we're going to make sure that they'll be able to do it for as long as they they wish to do it and not burn out where you give so much that you just can't give any more. We don't want that to happen. And I, and I do think that is, that's a brilliantly practical idea, whether it will catch on with every charity, but it really should to establish what supports are the most effective for people who are um, taking on responsibility for supporting others through emotionally distressing times and making sure you've got financial um, provision for that as part of the ongoing operating costs. Exactly. And it's kind of like, you know, it's to some extent, I'm sat here being like, oh, should I say this as the head of a charity, which is a kind of grant making charity? And then people are like, right, we're going to apply for this. You've got to give this. And it's like, I, I have to start saying this so that we can have the conversations mm-hmm. where we can explore how do we do that? That doesn't mean if a grant application arrives in our inbox tomorrow, where it's 100% on this amazing program that's going to be a kind of sustainable embedded way of supporting individuals in that charity that I can be like yes 100% let's fund it because there are all other kind of competing elements we have to look at but I would be very sad if in a year's time two years time you know as I'm kind of looking back over the first 12 months in, in of my world at this charity if that wasn't a front and center part of the conversations when we're looking at how we can maximize the funding once we've already made the commitments that we have you know our commitment mm-hmm. to bed every night is long-standing but once we've made that what else can we do how else can we see the maximum impact of work that we do and I I really do think that um just having the uh, ability to recognize that supporting the emotional and mental well-being of the people who are helping others 
is um, part of the work. It's not aside from the work. It's not in addition to the work. It is part of the work. Is 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 just something that we should be doing. If we keep scratching our heads, going, I don't understand why mental health is is so on the decline in this country. Why is well part of it is it because we aren't setting out our stall and saying no we care about the mental mental and emotional well-being of everybody and um, we will take active steps to protect it so i think well i you have my full support i i, I think that's a, a very important thing to do and i'd encourage um any of our audience who are listening who have volunteers who are giving up their time and energy to be um, mental health first aiders, mental well-being champions who are taking on the burden. Um, and like Fran, you mentioned, it it goes up to the line manager, et cetera, et cetera. Um, whoever is doing it needs somewhere for it to go. I, as a coach, have someone who I speak to weekly as part of my clinical supervision because we all need someone to offload to. And the more removed that individual is from the situation, the easier it is for them not to to carry the emotional turmoil back with them. So why wouldn't you do that for people who are are working for you so that they can continue to work for you and then they don't get volunteer burnout? Makes sense. It does make sense. And I think like one of the reasons we're so bad at it is just like the wider kind of like ideology in society, which is really individualistic. Like if everything about our economy, how we be, how we are, is like you get on, you maximise the impact on the economy, you make the most money and caring mm. in all of its different forms, whether that's supporting people you work with to being a parent, to working in social care or healthcare that is totally marginalised in our society. We do not value it in any way. So it doesn't surprise me at all that we've got to this stage. And actually, we have to completely pivot it and change it, change the view. We should have think we should have a caring economy rather than the kind of GDP focus, this is the only social good, etc. And then if we had that, if we start to shift that narrative, it'd be really natural and automatic for employers and organisations to say, of course, this is really important. Of course, it needs to be more than a well-being week. You know, it would be just like mm-hmm. fully ingrained into how people operate and expected. And if it wasn't there, you'd be like, why isn't it there? How come this hasn't happened? And it, we're being told, at least in the media, that this is increasingly becoming the case with organisations responding to pressure from typically younger generations, um, the Gen Z generations onwards, about Um, being more proactive in their corporate social responsibility we're being told that this is happening is and I I hope to god it is that organizations are recognizing that they have responsibilities towards um, the communities that they operate in and as well as the wider world um, as well as their employees and therefore they need to um, be more human and humane in their approach to, to business and hopefully that will reflect in time on our collective individual consciousness, if that makes sense, so that we all understand this is important for the um, safe and productive operation of our society as a whole, that I look after me and I also look after him and her and them. Yeah. That's my utopia. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And as soon as we do that, we then also look after the container that we live in. Like those things become mm -hmm. automatic. And actually, once you're doing that, you kind of like have a kind of ripple effect on all kinds of things, anything from income inequality to life expectancy. You would see all of that if we started off with that view that actually we are part of a, a society. We're, we're social animals. That's how we live. And yet we've kind of engineered this state where we need to focus on just us rather than he, her, they it the wider world mm -hmm. it just becomes about us personally and when we failed at that we feel it whereas we mm. don't need to we should just have the support um it, you remind me of when i was a a student at uni all those decades ago and <laughs> i was studying gender studies as part of my degree don't ask me why it just came up and what we were asked to read was a book called men are from mars women are from venus don't know if you've read it i've not read it oh well it was all rage back in the 90s anyway um there was a bit in it where they said on mars where the men live martians everybody looks after themselves. If I look after myself, Fran, and you look after yourself, Fran, then we'll all be okay, right? Whereas on Venus, where the women live, it's a different approach. Everybody is responsible for looking after someone else. So if Fran, if you take care of me and I take care of you, then we'll all be okay. And it strikes me that um, the capitalist economy is founded on a martian societal structure yeah so i take care of myself and you take care of yourself um and what we need to do in this modern age is move to a more venusian social structure <laughs> yeah where we look after each other yeah um and it'll be okay we kind of have this weird state where we we're like we're all martians individually we expect the government to be purely Venusian, run by Venusians, to look after all of us. And we're like, well, the NHS wasn't there for me and this wasn't happening. And this, Yeah, but if, if, if we're all Martians on this planet, no one's a Venusian. So we're either all Venusians or we're all Martians. Which do you want to be? That made sense in my head. I don't know if it makes sense to any of you. To me, that was a perfectly formed argument. I don't know if it made any sense. Did it make sense to you, Fran? I was with you for most of it, and I will be entertained if everyone else is listening, going, Martians, Venusians, where are we? But <laughs> the, the analogy was good, and it's that idea, yeah, it's that capitalistic view that is individual and not the collective, but we are only a collective, therefore that's what yeah. we should be prioritising. It's, it's the way I've always operated. I'll look after you and I I just literally expect you to look after me too. And that's it. Um, listen, moving on to more um, earthbound <laughs> analogies. You have written a book. I am wildly jealous, massively impressed and overwhelmed that you've written a book. And I feel a little bit of a, uh, a rocket up my bum to get started myself could you tell us a little bit about what this book which is part of the giant series is about yeah so in november last year it was uh, 80 years since the beverage report and the beverage report is what is largely hailed as the blueprint for our welfare state and in this sir william beverage presented this report to a committee 
and they were looking at how do how does Britain how do we reconstruct after war and also you've got to remember they were kind of like mm. the dying flames of an empire there was all kinds of reasons they were looking at doing this not all of them the sorts of reasons you or I might be pleased with but ultimately <laughs> what came out of that was this idea that there were five giants standing on the road blocking our path to reconstruction and these were want squalor idleness ignorance and disease and what say that again one want so one basic squalor. poverty squalor so that's often looking at housing idleness mm. employment ignorance education and disease and out of that they proposed this system of social security and the blueprint for the nhs so okay. the book that i wrote and i was one of five sets of people so i wrote the book disease was looking at what was originally proposed how far have we come and what do we need to do now so it's kind of like saying we had the nhs and that was a wonderful thing but what do we now need to kind of allow more flourishing and ultimately the point was that our welfare system so it's basically about the welfare state the welfare system we have was built for a population that no longer exists and has also been eroded by this capitalist individualist view in that we don't have any shared responsibility. We don't kind mm. of see that everyone has a right to support. We've kind of created this safety net to support people before they hit rock bottom. But not only is it now really, really low and perhaps only just above rock bottom for some, it's got massive holes in it. And so the book is around what specifically in terms of health, and actually, given that health is so fundamental to everything else and all the kind of social determinants of health, which meant I touched on all sorts of things like education, housing, um, employment. It's like, what do we actually need to do now to, to flourish as a society? And where do we need to go? What are the contemporary challenges? And that's anything from COVID to climate change. What do we need to do in a relatively short book? But how can we make a difference? How can we look? And one of the main arguments was, firstly, this idea of structural violence, that we are living in a structurally violent society and we are all complicit in it as long as we don't do anything about it. And structural violence kills. This is why... What's structural violence? Structural violence is where you have a system, a structure of society that systematically disadvantages some while maintaining the advantage and flourishing of others. It is why, and I opened the book, and it was funny because I started writing this book at the start of the pandemic, and I found this quote mm. from Johan Galtung, who is a professor of peace studies in, in Norway, and he came up with the concept of structural violence. And the quote, and I'm going to mess it up, but it's something like, if a person died in the 18th century from tuberculosis, you wouldn't necessarily be surprised. But if they died today of tuberculosis, even with all the medical resources in the world, that is mm. violence. And the point is mm. that when you control or hoard or kind of like maintain inequality in society, that means some are okay, but many, many others aren't. And it's because of the structures of society that allow this uneven power dynamic. That kills, that literally kills people. And it's structural violence. You don't have to kind of physically hurt someone else to have contributed to their death. You don't have to see or you should be able to see that when we have huge differences in life expectancy between people who have lower incomes than people who have higher incomes. When you see the huge, huge differences in maternal mortality, in, in children dying between people of different ethnicities, you know, that, mm. that's structural violence, that's racism, yeah. and that's because of structural violence. Look at what happened in COVID, the huge, huge inequalities in both yeah. exposure, mortality and illness, structural violence. Mm -hmm. 
I could talk about this for a long time, but I am just going to leave my soapbox where it is for now for the sake of time. But I like that. I'm stealing that expression, structural violence. Thank you. And in your book, there was a great quote that we, we loved that links back to the well-being rebellion. So it, you said, good health is not simply the absence of disease. It's the collective of physical, social and mental well-being. It is the product of nutrition and genetics of healthy lifestyles and preventative health interventions. So what importance do you believe the roles of those who help to be? So the helpers, what do you think the importance of their roles um, is in creating and maintaining um, this good health? And how is this being reflected and recognized in society? I think. I can kind of flip it and say how it's not being reflected and recognised in society is through the kind of medicalization of everything that constitutes our health. Like we're, we're too mm. automatic to kind of assume that if we, if there's something wrong with us, whether or not that's physically or mentally, we can just go to the doctor, demand a pill and we'll be fine. Whereas actually, mm. not only is that wrong anyway, but also there's so many other things, informal kind of providers of support and healthcare and social care that could also be fixing us and helping us. But we don't put any weight on those and we don't use them in the way that we might once have done because we believe in the silver bullet of medicine. We've like pathologized everything about what feels abnormal about our bodies or our minds and therefore are not doing the sorts of things that could help. And kind of some of them then feel gimmicky when we talk about it. You know, people say, go out and get some fresh air. And people are like, no, that won't help. It will actually, it will do a lot. Um, talk to your friends, build on your social networks. People are like, no, no, that's not going to help me. It will, it really will. Like these people are giving you mm. care and support by being there for you. So I think the way, the way that we should be reflecting this in society is working out what are the things that actually harm us, like physically and mentally, and how can we address those? And that might be stuff that's in our immediate vicinity in our kind of private lives, or it might be things that we should be advocating and lobbying upwards because that's in the kind of public sphere, political sphere. Mm. And all mm. of those things together, if we kind of took them as about that's how you enable good health and flourishing in all of its dimensions, not just with a pill, then we'll see a lot of progress. Don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. And it's not to denigrate the use of medication, like um, no, no, publicly said. Yeah, I mean, if there's something wrong with me and I need medication, I will happily take it. I'm the, the daughter of two doctors. I'll, I will take the pill. But when I was in my stage three burnout, I took the pills. I recognized that alone isn't going to fix me. It will help. But it's it, the medication only has a, a a limit, doesn't it? It can take you so far, but the rest of the work had to be through discussion, therapy, time, love, personal growth, all of that kind of stuff, and that doesn't come in tablet form as much as we'd want it to. Exactly, and not only that kind of like what is all of that side in terms of the cure curing of it, but the prevention side of things is definitely mm. more than a pill. You know, like, I completely agree. If there's medicine and it's going to help, have it. But don't assume that that's the only thing that will cure you and don't believe that that's the only thing we need and you can just be cured when it happens. We should be doing more about prevention. Yeah. It's it's the, it's that old adage. And sometimes they're the best. Prevention is is a thousand times better than cure. 
Yeah, there's a reason. Just don't get sick. So focus some of your time, some of your energy, some of your finances in preventing the problem so that you don't have to spend even more fixing it. Yeah. It's simple. Yeah. And at all scales, from the individual to the government, organisations, communities, everything in, in the in the middle, we kind of kick the can down the road and be like, oh, it's not happened yet. We'll just fix it when it comes to it. And that's costly in more ways than one. Mm. I really love talking with you, Fran. Thank you. Um, I can't say that you've um, eased any of my imposter syndrome talking to you because <laughs> I can tell you're, <laughs> you you really are somebody that I'm privileged to have in my, so, in my social circle now. Um, I have one final question for you before you go. Mm. And it's one that we ask all of our guests is our uh, wellbeing rebellion signature question, if you will. And it's it's simply this. As a fellow well-being rebel, which you definitely are, <laughs> frankly, um, you may lead the pack, but there you go. As a fellow well-being rebel, what's one change that you would like to see implemented in workplace well-being specifically? Probably something around, and you would touch on it before, that's really important. All of the things that we do to ensure the well-being in a workplace is an additional voluntary role that people take on. So let's stop kind of dismissing or pushing that to the sides of a job description and pull it right into the front and say, actually, if this is a role that we care about, like let's create a paid role for it. We'll actually say, you know what? 50% of your level of effort is on this. It's not something you do on top of it. I, do you know, I love that. And nobody's ever suggested that. Really? Yes. Fran, that's why I have imposter syndrome. Nobody has suggested that um, in terms of bringing uh, more weight and credence to the fact that these voluntary roles serve the organisation a purpose, whether it be financial, and it is always financial, a financial purpose. Therefore, they deserve recognition and time allocation and reward. Uh, Yes, I love it. I'm stealing that one too. You can have I'm it. going to steal that one. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Fran. Um, I've loved it. I'm sure our audience will love it. And um, I, I look forward to hearing more. Um, can we put the link to where people can purchase your book on disease yes. in the show notes? Yes. Yeah, fantastic. That's been great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion. If you liked what you just heard, please share it with your colleagues, follow us on LinkedIn, the link will be in the show notes, and generally show us some love. We want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone. Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.